0: Hey guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market. Well, once again, you'll go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. My guest this week is Charles Frey, otherwise known as Chuck, who is the VP of Scientific Affairs at Coating Place. He is a really lovely guy and I really enjoyed our conversation today. Chuck is the VP of Scientific Affairs. As I mentioned, a CDMO focused in Worcester, bottom spray, fluid bed coating, and associated services. It's great for Chuck to give us some of the backstory to Worcester coating Technology and, and how it's really changed the world of formulation development. He also talks about some of the challenges of for the coating place of being under the radar at times, but nevertheless being seen as the go-to guys for some of the most challenging processing projects in the market when no one else can help a drug sponsor with a particular challenge. Some people decide to uh, focus on our friends at the coding place. It's really quite an interesting conversation in terms of some of the family kind of ups and downs and sacrifices and successes that some of the leaders in our space have to go through whilst working in the industry. So we delve a little bit deeper into that. And I think that's a really kind of human element to Chuck's story. Which really contrasts his, uh, you know, clear, clear academic and uh, you know scientific prowess, which is which is clear to see. Uh, for background coating place as a CDMO f- focused on Worcester fluid bed coating associated services, Chuck moved to the company in 1999 to develop expertise on the Worcester fluid bed coating process. During this time, he has focused primarily on application of Worcester process and related technologies to meet the feasibility, formulation development, scale-up, validation and commercial processing needs of clients. Primary interests have included both formulation chemistry and optimization of process dynamics. The company continues to manufacture proprietary Worcester coating equipment for its operations and Chuck has helped scale, maintain and expand the company's offering with new fluidization plate designs, new nozzles, enhancing scaling knowledge and other technical advances. Having spent over 30 years in the space, Chuck has also lectured on the Worcester process and formulations, and has contributed several book chapters on the fluid bed coating process and formulations. Thanks, as always, for listening to Molecule to Market. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you do, please do us a favor and share today's episode with a colleague and possibly even if you're feeling very uh, kind today, go onto your app store of choice, give us a little five star rating, and maybe give us a positive comment as well. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy today's show, Chuck Fry. Welcome to Molecule to Market. Thanks, Roman. It's uh, it's good to be here. No, it's great to have you here, Chuck. And thanks for thanks for making the time to to be a guest. And Chuck, let's start with giving our listener a little bit of the backstory of how you got into the industry and your career path to to where you are today at The Coating Place.
1: Okay, well, um, if I go back a long ways, uh, you you get back into the high school days and even middle school days where uh, I had uh, the benefit of having instructors that uh, were able to uh, interest me in science, which I naturally lean toward anyway. But uh, upon graduation from uh, high school, uh, I was considering getting into veterinary medicine. And uh, it was a challenge, challenging career to get into in uh, the state of Wisconsin here in the US because um, they didn't have a vet school in Wisconsin at that time. And so the best shot at getting into a vet school was uh, the University of Minnesota, where a reciprocity agreement Uh, with the state of Wisconsin, they took uh, 17 students from Wisconsin every year. It was actually uh, easier to get into medical school, I think, than it was vet school. Uh, But that that has changed uh, over time. There is a vet school now, but uh, after uh, a couple of years of of college, um, my interest shifted over into uh, chemistry and uh, it was a a career path I, I could see you know uh, favorable for making an income and, and that sort of thing so um, finished my chemistry degree in 1981 at the University of Wisconsin River Falls and uh, the question at that time uh, became uh, what do I do next you know graduate school or, or a job and uh, about six months before uh, graduating uh, a friend of mine uh, who had uh, started work uh, a year prior to me at uh, Dow Chemical Company. He, uh, he said, uh, you know, I've been talking about you at, uh, at Dow and uh, I think you should submit a resume. So, uh, so I did, and I was invited for an interview and uh, six months before graduating, I had a job offer. And uh, this was 1981, which was a very, uh, it was a downturn in the economy that year. So everything was good at the beginning of the year with the job offer. By the time I went to join the company in July, I was kind of curious if I still had a job, and uh, and I did. So it was a wonderful place to, to start uh, my working career. Um, worked in the analytical labs there in uh, Midland, Michigan. Uh, over 200 uh, analytical chemists there, supporting research and uh, production uh, operations, uh, anything that needed analytical chemistry. And so so, um, I, I didn't intend to, to stay Dow, at Dow forever, and a lot of people were surprised at that because that was kind of a holy grail of uh, a job opportunity. Once you're in, why would you ever leave? But uh, I, I did have interest in moving on, and uh, I remember going out with a, uh, one of the salespeople that came in, uh, and I was working with, and uh, we were talking about you know, what I planned to do long term and i said yeah i don't plan on staying here forever and and he warned me he said you watch out you'll uh, end up meeting someone and uh, then you'll want to get married and uh, they'll be from the area and you won't be able to leave (laughs) so i did actually meet my wife there and uh, shortly after we met i told her i don't plan on staying here forever and she said good i'd like to get out too (laughs) so it actually worked in my favor but uh Anyway, uh, I stayed with Dow for about seven years and then moved on to uh, Betts Laboratories down in the Woodlands, Texas. And uh, they were a company specializing in water treatment, but uh, they had branched out into process chemicals and uh, paper chemistry and, and that sort of thing. And uh, I was with them for eight years and uh, what really, uh, moved us to to move on from there was a couple of health things within the family. Uh, My youngest son at 18 months old, he had a a cranial tumor. And um, so we were at uh, Texas Children's Hospital to to get that surgery done. And it was was a pretty trying experience. But anyway, he came out of that uh, without any serious complications, which was fortunate. But shortly after that, my wife uh, picked up a virus and uh, it was eventually diagnosed as Epstein-Barr virus. But uh, there was a period of time in there where my kids were asking me if uh, mom was going to live or not. And um, so we got to thinking about moving closer to family, which is up uh, in the north uh, in Wisconsin. And so we moved there uh, in 1996 and I took a job with Gilson Medical Electronics. Gilson is uh, first company to use computers to control uh, laboratory instrumentation and uh, it was a wonderful uh, wonderful place to uh, to work uh, it was pretty much all a research environment to me to me and uh, uh, was able to do a lot of really fun things but uh, after three and a half years there uh, it was just fortunate uh, I had run into an old friend like three years prior to leaving Gilson and he recalled my background of getting into chemistry and what I'd done. And uh, uh, he had, and, uh, he and his brother had recently acquired a controlling interest in, uh, in the coding place, the company. And so um, I uh, eventually talked to them and uh, they were looking for somebody to take on the, uh, the technical aspects of the company. And it uh, looked like a great opportunity. So I jumped on board and um, i been very happy with that decision. And uh, during my career here, it's it's been pretty much focused on Worcester fluid bed coating technology, which is uh, the bread and butter of the company. And um, I've been able to contribute in a lot of ways here.
0: Thanks, Chuck, for for giving us the kind of backstory which takes you to the coating place and kind of the, the turn of the millennium and where you've spent the next 23 years or so. And, um, and also thank you for sharing some of the, I suppose, personal challenges that that you went through on, on that journey as well. And I'll come back later on to, to ask about kind of your family and, and all that type of thing. So you mentioned the Worcester Fluid kind of technology. So for me, but also our listeners that are not familiar with that technology, do you mind just, I suppose, in layman's terms, talking about what that technology is and how it helps in drug development, but also... Um, I suppose just talk us through your two decades at the coding place and how that time has been and how your roles have developed during your your kind of time in, in, in one organization. Okay. Now, um, yeah, when I came, Worcester
1: Technology basically is uh, was patented back in the 1950s and 60s. Um, Dr. Dale Worster at the University of Wisconsin was looking initially at ways to coat tablets. And um, eventually pan-coating uh, uh, was what uh, uh, developed invented uh, pan-coating, which uh, uh, better suited that need. But by the mid-1960s, they realized the value of the process for coating small particles. And uh, basically it, it changed a lot of things with the development of that technology because now we had the ability to apply thin uh, or very controlled film coat thicknesses onto particles, ranging in size from roughly uh, oh, 50 or 100 microns up to, say, centimeter size or larger. And uh, the ability to control that film coat thickness and, and have it uniform uh, allowed so many, so many things. You, know, you could formulate the coating for the need, like controlled release, technology used quite commonly in the pharma industry and and other industries. And uh, you can formulate the coding to to meet the needs. So tremendous amount of flexibility uh, to do things that uh, wasn't there before. So, uh, um, And Coding Place uh, actually developed from from that work at the university. Uh, Harlan Hall, the founder of Coding Place, he uh, joined the uh, University of Wisconsin uh, uh, laboratories in 1971, and uh, they largely were working on commercializing the technology. I think at that time, so there was equipment being built for clients. There was uh, there were formulations being developed, uh, and so on. And uh, many are familiar with the fluid bed coders that uh, GLAT Air Techniques manufactures, and uh, that technology was all transferred from the university to GLAT back in that. 1970s timeframe, I believe, and um, um, and eventually, uh, I think Glatt made coders, but uh, it was kind of a interesting relationship because I think the university initially had licensed a company in the UK to to make Worcester coders, and uh, they didn't do much with it. And uh, Herr Glatt was was very interested in it, but the university wouldn't talk to him. Um, And eventually, I think, Glatt made equipment and they started to sell it in the U.S. And I think when it showed up in the U.S., the university finally said, uh, we've we've got to do something about this. So the story I've heard is that the university sent somebody over to Germany, talked to Herr Glatt. And uh, I think uh, the attitude they conveyed, it was kind of like, uh, oh, it's about time you got here. And uh, so... uh, Eventually they did transfer the, the technology uh, to make equipment to, to GLOT and uh, and it branched out from there. But uh, in late 1976, the university had taken the technology as far as they wanted and uh, uh, while Harlan was working at the university, um, they were running into some situations where they had put equipment into to other companies and they were using the process and they were only using it sporadically through the year. Um, they would use it for production campaigns and it wasn't run continuously. So when it came around time to run it, um, from time to time, they would call the university and say, hey, can you help us out? We can't remember what we, how we did it. And so uh, they asked the university, hey, could we go out there and help them produce their product and then come back? And the university said no. The uh, university is a nonprofit organization, so we can't get involved in commercial activities. So uh, when they did decide to discontinue developing the technology, they recalled uh, Harlan's interest in going out and servicing a company. And they said, would you like to buy the technology? So Harlan and his colleague, Ralph Pondell, they bought the uh, Worcester IP from the university. And uh, they continued to surface what was out there and develop new formulations and uh, eventually develop a coating place into a contract uh, manufacturing organization. Um, so um, so during the early years, it was, it was very difficult. It was just Ralph and Harlan. This is a, a bootstrap sort of business. Um, I think Harlan told me their goal initially was to get clear $100 per week for each of them. Uh, as profit. You know, and you think about that. That's, yeah, they're investing all their own money and, and any money they can get into the business. And they didn't want any outside interests coming in. And uh, I've talked to some clients who were here early on and they said, oh yeah, I remember Harlan and Ralph, they'd be up pounding on those expansion chambers. And they say they need to hire more people. So eventually, they did continue to hire people, and uh, they continued, continued to, do, to develop the, the coders. And um, by uh, but a lot of formulations that were developed, uh, they didn't have the capacity to do commercial work. So the work would go to other facilities, uh, and, be, and those formulations would be transferred there. So, um, but by the uh, Oh, late nineteen nineties, I think the company was at a transition point, and uh, that's when uh, new ownership came in. And uh, the new ownership had a goal of keeping it and maintaining it as a privately held enterprise. Um, they didn't. Uh, we've seen situations where uh, clients go to have uh, product produced uh, at a at a commercial uh, contract manufacturing site, and uh, eventually that contract manufacturer might develop a competing product for it and then they'd have to pull it somewhere else. So I think there was a little niche there in being a privately held enterprise where they, there wasn't that risk of, of running into competition from your, your supplier. Um, but uh, when I joined the company in 99, it was uh, really a lot about developing or bringing clients into the facility. There were tech transfer processes, uh, uh, tech transfers bringing, in, bringing it in as well as new formulations that we were developing. And uh, we continue to grow. Um, In in 2007, we kind of measure capacity in terms of how many pounds of product or kilograms of product we can produce in a year. And in 2007, uh, we have a way of measuring it and uh, it's it's kind of nebulous. But if I use the same reference point, we were at maybe in the neighborhood of three million kilograms of coating capacity in 2007. And by uh, 2015, actually by 2017, we're up to 18 million kilograms. So roughly six-fold increase in in production capacity. So uh, I was involved in a a lot of that work in terms of scaling up and validating processes and uh, qualifying processes and so on. And uh, through those years, we've also added technologies that complement the Worcester process, because uh, clients don't want to come just for the Worcester work, they uh, they want you to do the other things that are required around that. So we've integrated capsule filling and tableting and uh, uh, extrusion spheronization and uh, wet granulation, um, you know, all processes that blend well and support the work that we're doing with our core business. And... Uh, yeah,
0: so that's where we're at today. And and thank you for the backstory. And what I loved the kind of story of the founders, you know, the whole in, in, in Pondell, I think it is, in terms of their bootstrapping early days and, and how they kind of <laughs> fought off <laughs> adding any employees and then got to a point where they didn't have a choice. And just out of curiosity, are they, owner, are they still involved today are they still around or is, you know have they, they long gone since?
1: Well, uh, Ralph Pondell, he did move on from the business in 1999. and uh, Harlan is still a part owner of the business. He is uh, I believe he's the chairman of the board for the company. So we retain that history with us.
0: Amazing. Great, great heritage. And and let me ask you, obviously you talked in great detail about the the worst of technology and and obviously you've added complementary technology since, which makes a lot of sense when clients are coming to you for a variety of integrated services. Just, again, this is probably my technical or lack of technical knowledge. So when you think about kind of your worst of technology, what are the alternative technologies out there? Do, do, Do customers come to you for that particular technology or are they comparing it with alternatives out there in the market that can be used kind of instead of that particular technology?
1: Yeah, the there aren't a lot of competing technologies for for what we do with the Worcester, uh, depending on what particle size range you're, you're looking at. Um, it really is recognized as the best way to put a uniform coating onto a, a small particle. And uh, variations of the Worcester process, which is a bottom spray process, um, uh, are a top spray or tangential spray, as I call it. But those techniques are generally more well-suited to granulating material as opposed to coating individual particles. Okay. So okay. So in terms of in a lot of particle coding technology, every one that has survived pretty much has a little niche where it works best. And the worst are really really has this niche tied up, I believe.
0: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And and you guys are the only company around that do this? Is this your specific IP that you guys have? Or is it, I mean, you mentioned obviously Glatt, do Glatt still offer this service or is this something specific to you guys in the US?
1: Uh, no, there are other, uh, uh, providers that uh, have Worcester Technology, okay, and um, so GLAT had a an arm of their company that uh, was strictly uh, for contract processing. Uh, Cardinal Health, um, which uh, they have a division that uh, derived out of the International Processing Corporation, I believe it was IPC down in Kentucky, and uh, that facility operates. Uh, I think Pathion does work with uh, fluid bed coating. Uh, there's there's Quite a few of them out there. Um, we we have a reputation, I think, of being uh, a place that uh, can solve most problems if there's a challenge. Yeah. And in some respects, sometimes we get the hardest projects because uh, uh, they didn't work somewhere else, you know, and they want to want to see if it can work. So, uh, so sometimes we have more challenges here. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space.
0: In the couple of conversations that we've had, Chuck, and your nature, you strike me as the type of guy that likes having those hard challenges <laughs> when they've been elsewhere and they've shopped them around to other CDMOs and have been met with sh- heads that are shaking and, and hands on chins trying to work it out and they come to you and are you the guy that says, yep, we can, we can deal with this? Yeah,
1: I, I feel fairly confident in what, uh, what our capabilities are and what we can do. And, uh, if, if it is a challenging project, you know, I'll assess it and, uh, I'll say, you know, I can give a likelihood of success. And sometimes I'll say this has slim chances, but, the client might say this is the only thing that can work so let's give it a try. Um, but uh, quite often I, I will tell them where, where the pitfalls are and what uh, what might happen. Uh, in general, coming in with a project up front, uh, I could perhaps give a pretty reasonable assessment of what the cost might be to, to produce that on a commercial basis, depending on volume and so on. So um, um, yeah, I, I feel pretty confident uh, in what we do, and I'm usually on, in, uh, on the front end of a lot of conversations with new clients and so on, new projects. So.
0: Very good. And you I have to ask, so 23 years at The Coating Place, when you joined in 1999, did you envisage that you'd be there for the next couple of decades?
1: Yes, I did consider it was going to be uh, my final career stop um, mm-hmm. at the time. Um, there's a lot to learn coming in, but what I really love about it is it's a combination of the, the chemistry background I have with, uh, there's a lot of engineering aspects to it as well. And I like both things. Uh, I love to model pro- the process and, uh, uh, you know, make predictions on what we need to do to, to make a, a viable product. And, and it's interesting, you know, something that comes out of this is, you know, we focused on worship coding since the 1970s, basically the way I look at it. And it's a tremendous amount of expertise. And uh, we have clients in, come in quite often and we'll, we'll give advice about what we should do and make suggestions and so on. And uh, sometimes some of these things, perhaps they don't comprehend quite what we're saying or understand the importance of it. And uh, what we end up with is uh, they'll go different routes than we suggest. And often it swings around back to what we had suggested immediately, which isn't necessarily bad. You know, it's, We found out what doesn't work and we've honed in on, yes, this is where we need to be. But uh, I remember going to a conference years ago and uh, someone uh, spoke and said they, uh, they're they a small company and they had to hire contract manufacturers to do a lot of their work. And one of their disappointments were, was that uh, some of them that they hire claimed to be an expert in something. and as they get to working with them, they, find, they found that uh, their expertise only went so far and that then they'd have to hire another consultant for this, you know, when they thought they had it all tied up in the first one. And uh, it's funny, we sometimes run into the opposite sort of thing, where people come in and work with us because of our expertise, but when we make suggestions about what we should do, they'll ignore it and listen to, to someone else, you know. It's kind of, kind of a funny story on one of the projects where uh, we were having some trouble on the tail end and it was a relatively simple fix. Um, and we suggested that fix. And uh, one of the people on the, uh, the team uh, of the client um, said they, they couldn't fathom how that could fix the problem. And uh, they said, if that works, <laughs> I was told this story. They said, if that works, I will eat this batch record and um it it did work and uh i am not aware that the batch record was ever read <laughs> and, and batch records are pretty pretty big things nowadays so that'd be quite a meal
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah pretty chunky and you're i mean that's 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 fascinating to hear the kind of almost bounce back projects when clients don't kind of Listen to your expertise, and it's it's an interesting one, though, right? Because in the time you have been in the two, 23 years you've been at the coating place, the CDMO market and the contract services market has, you know, it's it's a very different place today in twenty twenty two than it was in you know the early two thousands. It's a it's a much more expanded, broader, deeper place, and so I think one of the challenges, particularly for virtual and smaller companies is they will go to cdmos for expertise and everyone markets themselves on expertise and to your point chuck it's very difficult sometimes for them to navigate well you know what level of expertise that they are getting or that they are accessing because you know everyone says they can do everything so i think reading between the lines in in terms of the success and longevity of the coating place is it? Is it just because you you guys have that deep niche expertise in, in this particular area that at the end of the day no one can ha- no one can offer that depth of expertise and whether that business comes direct to you on day one or it comes around the houses in the various ways that you've described ultimately you guys are seen as the go-to guys for, for this technology is that a fair kind of assumption
1: I believe that's a fair assumption and I base that on you know knowing what I know about the company and hearing comments from clients that we work with um, generally they really like working with us it's uh, uh, we, we service their needs well and we're very responsive and um, we, we do well in the, the quality metrics and, and everything associated with delivery and product quality and so on so uh, yeah i think i think we we are recognized as as an expert in this
0: No, i i agree and my observation is funny just researching the company and it's not it's not a business that i knew particularly well but i'd come across the name i think i originally met one of your team at cphi in in north america and but i'd recognize the name because i'd seen it in some trade magazines in the past and things like that but I would, my observation about The Coding Place is you're quite an understated company. So A, is that fair? And B, is that intentional that you guys kind of have quite a, you, you aren't intentionally understated and you're happy to almost go under the radar slightly and you're not as loud and brash, let's just say, as, as other people in the market?
1: No, I think uh, management would prefer to, to be out there. And uh, I think we have a past uh, perception to overcome. You know, when I talked about coding place in the early early days in the 70s, you know, they uh, bought a facility that was an old concrete facility, uh, basically because it had a building that was tall enough to to hi- uh, install a coder. And uh, the coder went in there, but uh, all of think about all the infrastructure you need for a company, you know. We we deal with solvent-based coatings, and so solvent drums would come to the facility on a, on a truck, and they didn't have an unloading dock. So what they did is they put a pile of sand out in the, in the parking lot, I believe, and the truck would back up to it, and they'd roll the drums off and down the hill, and, and take a <laughs> land cart and bring them in. You know, it's it's really being creative, you know, to get the job yeah. done. But people still see that and say, oh, they they aren't they don't have a good enough quality system or something like that. They and when they come to see our facility today, they are most are very surprised. They're they're very pleased with what they see here, and uh, so I think there is an old perception. Sometimes we're trying to to overcome. Um, and, you need a good uh, we marketing
0: were... company. you need a good marketing company. I definitely know <laughs> one. I can tell you that. So <laughs> I'm not gonna. And just for my listeners, I am not gonna try and sell. Uh, our good friend Chuck on the podcast. But yeah, it's it's fascinating because I think almost part of... It's, it's funny, you know, as, as a marketing guy, I often think, you know... You know, I remember writing a blog a couple of years ago and all the marketing... You can do all the marketing in the world, but if your product and your service delivery is not good enough or it's not world-class, then... It, you'll get found out eventually and often the kind of you know cream rises to the top in terms of if you deliver a, a solid consistent service offering in a market you will naturally be the go-to for something and you become that word of mouth kind of reputation led business which my understanding of based on what you talked about seems to be the case yeah,
1: and the thing I'll add to that is uh, clients have come in and they see what kind of production capacity we have here, and their perception was all we did was develop formulations; we we didn't commercially produce, and so uh, they naturally don't think of us. I think,
0: mm-hmm. but anyway, uh, no, it's it's good; it's fascinating. It's fascinating to, to get your insight, and I wanted to. So, obviously, you mentioned your family earlier on, and you know, in the in the backstory when we when we chatted earlier. I know you're one of eight siblings, which is fascinating, and I'm sure we could do an entire podcast. Um, great to hear that. You know, obviously, given the health challenges you mentioned in your family, you know, 25, 30 years ago now, um, I'm very happy to, to hear you've been married to your wife for, for 40 years and and you have three three children uh, you know presumably all all grown up and it sounds like they're doing amazing things and w- what does family like look look for you today and i know in in the notes that I, that we've got as well that what and this is the one that attracted me you can tell um just purely my <laughs> my, my my kind of uh, you've got three clearly very talented children, but the one is, one is dancer, an actor and an entrepreneur. And that's the one my eyes naturally navigate. less so the civil engineer or the, or the computer programming person uh, but which clearly non offense but I'm intrigued to hear of family life today. Tell us more about your uh, dancer actor entrepreneurial child because they sound like my one of my kids in, in the making. Well,
1: I'll I'll tell you about him first, but I have to talk about the other two, otherwise I'll be- Of course, of course, yes. (laughs) But yeah, the youngest, he, uh, when he graduated from high school, his interest was in performing kind of things. So when he goes to, applies to college, it's an audition. And uh, he was going out to auditions and uh, he told my wife after one, she said, he said, you know, I'm gonna be wasting your money. If uh, I do this, my my heart's just not in it right now. I need to be in Los Angeles or New York City. And so we said, okay, take a shot at it. So we uh, he, he picked Los Angeles. And so we arranged, you know, uh, place an apartment, share an apartment with somebody. And we drove him out to Studio City and dropped him off. And said, see what you can do. So for a year and a half, he... Uh, you know, did things like, uh, he's a dancer, um, so he, he liked dance, and he was doing uh, oh, music videos uh, for some some people. He was extras in movies, you know, some modeling, all that kind of stuff. But after a year and a half, he told us, he said, I'm ready to leave. I know I need college, and I don't want to be doing it when I'm 25. So we packed him up drove back to Wisconsin, which he technically was still a resident of. And uh, we got him into the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point to their dance program. And, uh, and it was a good place for him to start and get some of the undergrad work done. But uh, after a year and a half, he said, I, I need a higher caliber school. So he said, well, what are, what are you thinking? And uh, he named off schools and he auditioned at a, at a few and uh, ultimately ended up at uh, University of Arizona. In tucson and uh so he finished his dance degree there and uh didn't even walk through gradu- graduation he already had a job uh, on a cruise ship with Royal caribbean in asia so he did that you know, a few contracts out there and then uh, i think after that he uh landed a job in uh, Boy, I might have the chronology wrong here, but eventually <laughs> yeah. uh, he did. He did a, a stint in the, the Caribbean, actually, as well, and he he worked on a show in Berlin, uh, Palace Berlin. They uh, they uh, did a show called Vivid, and uh, so he uh, participated in you know putting that show together, and he worked with it for a year, and then he left that, and he ended up on a, back on a cruise ship, which. You know, he liked it because it was a nice way to, to make some money, you know, a lot of. Uh, uh, and, and, but anyway, this is when the pandemic hit Then, So he's in Asia and they're starting to shut the ship down and uh, they're stranded on a ship for three months, you know, because they think they're going to get off, but they don't and, and so on. So anyway, after three months and I won't go into all of that story, but he comes home and we said, OK, why don't you just concentrate on starting your online business you've talked about? So he did. And within eight months, he said, you know, I'm making enough money right now. I'm going to move to Denver. (laughs) So he moved to Denver and uh, he's been doing very well out there and he, he really likes Denver, but uh, now do, do I have time to talk about the other kids yet too? You can, you
0: can, of course you can. Yeah. You let us know about your other two children as well.
1: Well, the, the um, My uh, middle child, uh, my son, he's the computer person. And uh, yeah, he had a lot of struggles when he was was younger. We had moved from Texas to Wisconsin at kind of a critical age, and it was uh, very challenging for all of us in, in many respects. But one of the things that uh, when we moved, this would have been back in the late 1990s, uh, it was a time when we got the first personal computer at home to actually work with. and. Uh, but the thought was, you know, he loved playing around with computers and stuff. And we thought, let's just put it in his hand so he's comfortable with it. And boy, he loved it. And he would do things and he was always getting them messed up, getting viruses on him, and everything else. But all of that made him not fear the computer in any way. You know, you can do anything to it. You can get it fixed again, that sort of thing. So he works for an enterprise uh, resource management software company and uh, he's got a number of people that uh, he uh, he directs and uh, he uh, basically customizes uh, systems for companies uh, that use that software but uh, but then my daughter she's the oldest uh, she uh, graduated from college with an architecture degree and she got a job in st. Paul Minnesota with an architecture firm and she worked there for a couple of years and she said, you know what? I feel I need to go to graduate school." And she was really struggling with doing that. And I was on the phone with her one day and she was talking about worrying about making the wrong decision. And I just told her, well, there's not a wrong decision here. You just make a decision and what happens is going to determine the person you become. And she told me several years later that lifted a tremendous weight off her shoulders. But uh, she did. Decided to go to graduate school. She went to the New Jersey Institute of Technology and got a double master's in architecture and civil, engineer, civil engineering. And uh, she went to work with an East Coast uh, uh, construction firm. And uh, she was managing construction of, a, well, there was a Novartis facility out there in uh, uh, in oncology uh, in New Jersey. That was her first project uh, she worked on. And then she went to, uh, Uh, Portland, Oregon, and she worked on a facility there, managing the construction of that. And uh, then she wanted to do some uh, international work and uh, she looked at what international projects were available and she ended up going to uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, which uh, is a place she remembered I traveled to for business once and she thought it would be interesting. So she goes there and she manages uh, the construction of these twin towers, 37 stories. mixed use underneath and then uh, that project ends and uh, just when the pandemic is starting she's uh, starting to get her her, uh, move over to a project managing uh, twin or actually three residential towers around the Merdeka 118 tower that's just being completed this year there and um, but with the pandemic in, in Kuala Lumpur they have been pretty much locked down all, all the time. So she had twins in 19, or in 2019. Um, and uh, ever since they've been born, they've pretty much been in lockdown. So it's kind of like a blast from the past, you know, where uh, finally this year, they finally get out into the world. But the only people they know are mom and dad and, and a nanny.
0: <laughs> wow, amazing. I mean, I, I sympathize our our youngest was born in the middle of the pandemic, and it took a while to understand who these strange other people um, beyond his parents and brothers were. So, no, I think incredible and congratu- Well, congratulations on on the family success as much as the business success, Chuck. You uh, you strike me as a very content guy, if if that's fair. Um, you, you you obviously sound like a great parent as well as anything else.
1: Well, I credit a lot to my wife. I mean, uh, she, uh, gosh, we were told when kids get into school by people, they said, keep interested in what your kids are doing. Don't, do not neglect it. And she was in there all the way. And uh, you got to kind of t- protect them a little bit from the system at times. The last thing I'll say about my daughter is they did finally move back and they moved to Des Moines, Iowa, you know, and we thought, oh, okay. what a what a transition. What a difference
0: from Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> That's uh it's quite the contrast in uh yeah and they're very well traveled your children as well so last i know we're going to run out of time in a few minutes so i'm just one thing i think could be great to share would you know you know obviously listeners of our podcast are working in the contract services sector either on the vendor side or in pharma services or you know on the kind of drug development sponsor side you know, you've been in the sector a long time. You've played a pivotal role in the area of coding technology and processing that you operate. What what does the future look like for our sector? Obviously there's there's quite a lot of change going on and obviously we've come out of COVID. What how do you see the next few years developing? What should people be aware of? And, you know, from any vantage point, whether it be really macro things or, you know, more specific to dosage forms or capabilities or, or, you know, technology in the area that you, you operate in?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always a good question. Uh, and crystal ball isn't always that clear. I know early on at Coding Place, the challenge was uh, we would have, say, some big clients that we work with. And the concern was always, we don't want to be tied up with one client too much because if something causes them to go away, we've got a lot of, a lot of things to fill. We're, we're in a business where we have a certain amount of capacity, and we like to use all that capacity. And uh, uh, sometimes we get tied up in in work that's kind of the current trend, and uh, things are going gangbusters for us, but we also recognize that can dry up very quickly as well. Uh, so there's a lot, of, a lot of challenges associated with that. You know, and, and one example I'll give is uh, the the opiate, or painkiller epidemic, whatever you want to call it. Um, We do controlled substance, we work with controlled substances here. So there were quite a few projects in that area, developing formulations and uh, some in commercial production and so on. And uh, when that uh, uh, pandemic or epidemic started up, all those projects dried up, you know, suddenly they're gone, you know. And even with COVID, there were certain projects we were working on and COVID changed the dosing sort of plan or what was ideal for clients and stuff. And and suddenly projects that were supposed to be starting production were were suddenly cut down substantially and so on. So we've always got capacity to bring things in, but it takes time to bring them in. And uh, we also have had the dilemma of... Do we put in the equipment to get the work or do we get the work and then put the equipment to, to meet that demand? And uh, most clients, you have to have the capacity in order to get the work. So we, um, we recognize, we try to have enough foresight to, to put the equipment in and then uh, have it here ready to, to take on the work. But uh, I think the thing I've observed in recent years is sometimes companies in transition, maybe they're they're purchased by someone and uh, they evaluate all of their processes and they might say, you know, it makes more sense for us to do the coding work over here. So they might pull it from our production, and maybe we'll become a secondary supplier for them or something like that. But uh, those kind of things happen. You know, clients are always looking for uh, you know the best bottom line. So uh, I do think. Contract processing will remain uh, a, a business, and and whatever area makes sense uh, to work in, because clients recognize are big producers. They can't do everything in house. You know, they need people to pick up the things, and at least something like Worcester Technology, which is quite specialized, there is a niche there, which uh, you know gives us a, a good place to be.
0: Yeah. So no, yeah, I agree. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, and I think it's mm-hmm. great learnings and insights for, for our listeners. And um, Chuck, what a what a great conversation. I'm very grateful that you made the time to come on the show. I appreciate how busy you are and I'm glad our listeners got to hear your story and get an insight into The Coating Place and its incredible technology and, and, and rich kind of heritage as well um and yeah thanks again for for being a guest on molecule to market thank you man appreciate being here hi again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on spotify apple podcast or wherever you'd like to listen get in touch with us on our website molecule to and follow us on linkedin or twitter and we will see you again next week
1: You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.